This is Pastor John Schmidt, and I'm here to present what we at KNNA, The Cross 957, are calling Classic Lutheran Preaching, featuring the sermons of Martin Luther and other Lutheran preachers. Due to time restraints, this is an abridged reading of Martin Luther's sermon for the first Sunday in Advent. This is from the John Nicholas Lenker Collection, published in 1905, and reissued by Baker Book House in 1983 and still available today. The text for Advent 1 is Matthew 21, verses 1 to 9. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and came unto Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village that is over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if anyone says aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. Now this is come to pass, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did even as Jesus appointed them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their garments, and he sat thereon. And the most part of the multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them in the way. And the multitudes that went before him and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. This gospel encourages and demands faith. For it prefigures Christ coming with grace, whom none may receive or accept save he who believes him to be the man and has the mind as this gospel portrays in Christ. Nothing but the mercy, tenderness, and kindness of Christ are here shown, and he who so receives and believes on him is saved. He sits not upon a proud steed, an animal of war, nor does he come in great pomp and power, but sitting upon an ass, a donkey, an animal of peace fit only for burdens and labor, and a help to man. He indicates by this that he comes not to frighten man, nor to drive or crush him, but to help him and to carry his burden for him. And although it was the custom of the country to ride on asses and to use horses for war, as the scriptures often tell us, yet here the object is to show that the entrance of this king shall be meek and lowly. Again, it also shows the pomp and conduct of the disciples toward Christ, who bring the colt to Christ, set him thereon, and spread their garments in the way. Also that of the multitude, who also spread their garments in the way, and cut branches from the trees. They manifested no fear nor terror, but only blessed confidence in him as one for whom they dared to do such things, and who would take it kindly and readily consent to it. Again, he begins his journey and comes to the Mount of Olives to indicate that he comes out of pure mercy. For olive oil in the scriptures signifies the grace of God that soothes and strengthens the soul as oil soothes and strengthens the body. Thirdly, there is no armor present, no war cry, but songs and praise, rejoicing and thanksgiving to the Lord. Fourthly, Christ weeps as Luke 19 writes, he weeps over Jerusalem because she does not know nor receive such grace. Yet he was so grieved at her loss that he did not deal harshly with her. Fifthly, his goodness and mercy are best shown when he quotes the words of the prophets Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9. 
and tenderly invites men to believe and accept Christ, for the fulfilling of which prophecies the events of this gospel took place and the story was written as the evangelist himself testifies. First he says, Tell ye, the daughter of Zion. This is said to the ministry, and a new sermon is given them to preach, namely, nothing but what the words following indicate, a right knowledge of Christ. Whoever preaches anything else is a wolf and a deceiver. This is one of the verses in which the gospel is promised, of which Paul writes in Romans 1. For the gospel is a sermon from Christ, as he is here placed before us, calling for faith in him. I have often said that there are two kinds of faith. First, a faith in which you indeed believe that Christ is such a man as he is described and proclaimed here and in all the Gospels, but do not believe that he is such a man for you. And you are in doubt whether you have any part in him and think, yes, he is such a man to others, to Peter, Paul, and the blessed saints, but who knows that he is such to me, and that I may expect the same from him and may confide in it as these saints did. Behold, this sort of faith is nothing. It does not receive Christ nor enjoy him, nor can it feel any love and affection for him or from him. It is a faith about Christ and not in and of Christ, a faith which the devils also have as well as evil men. For who is it that does not believe that Christ is a gracious king to the saints? This vain and wicked faith is now taught by the pernicious synagogues of Satan, Universities, Paris and her sister schools, together with the monasteries and all papists, say that this faith is sufficient to make Christians. In this way they virtually deny Christian faith, make heathen and Turks out of Christians, as St. Peter in Second Peter 2 had foretold. There shall be false teachers who shall privately bring in destructive heresies, denying even the master that bought them. In the second place the prophet particularly mentions the daughter of Zion. In these words he refers to the other, the true faith. For if he commands that the following words concerning Christ be proclaimed, there must be someone to hear, to receive, and to treasure them in firm faith. He does not say, tell of the daughter of Zion, as if someone were to believe that she has Christ, but to her you are to say that she is to believe it of herself, and not in any wise doubt that it will be fulfilled as the words declare. That alone can be called Christian faith which believes without wavering that Christ is the Savior, not only to Peter and to the saints, but also to you. Your salvation does not depend on the fact that you believe Christ to be the Savior of the godly, but that he is a Savior to you and has become your own. Such a faith will work in you love for Christ and joy in him, and good works will naturally follow. If they do not, faith is surely not present. For where faith is, there the Holy Ghost is, and must work love and good works. This faith is condemned by apostate and rebellious Christians. The Pope, bishops, priests, monks, and the universities, they call it arrogance to desire to be like the saints. Thereby they fulfill the prophecy of Peter in Second Peter 2, where he says of these false teachers, by reason of whom the way of the truth shall be evil spoken of. For this reason, when they hear faith praise, they think love and good works are prohibited. In their great blindness, they do not know what faith, love, and good works are. If you would be a Christian, you must permit these words to be spoken to you and hold fast to them and believe without a doubt that you will experience what they say. You must not consider it arrogance that in this you are like the saints, but rather a necessary humility and despair not of God's grace, but of your own worthiness. 
Under penalty of the loss of salvation does God ask for boldness toward his proffered grace. If you do not desire to become holy like the saints, where will you abide? That would be arrogance if you desire to be saved by your own merit and works, as the papists teach. They call that arrogance which is faith, and that faith which is arrogance. Poor and miserable, deluded people. If you believe in Christ and in his advent, it is the highest praise and thanks to God to be holy. If you recognize, love, and magnify his grace and work in you, and cast aside and condemn self and the works of self, then you are a Christian. We say, I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. Do you desire to be a part of the Holy Christian Church and communion of saints? You must also be holy as she is, yet not of yourself, but through Christ alone, in whom all are holy. Thirdly, he says, Behold. With this word he rouses us at once from sleep and unbelief as though he had something great, strange, or remarkable to offer something we have long wished for and would now receive with joy. Such waking up is necessary for the reason that everything that concerns faith is against reason and nature. For example, how can nature and reason comprehend that such a one should be king of Jerusalem who enters in such poverty and humility as to ride upon a borrowed ass? How does such an advent become a great king? But faith is of the nature that it does not judge nor reason by what it sees or feels, but by what it hears. It depends upon the word alone and not on vision or sight. For this reason Christ was received as a king only by the followers of the word of the prophet, by the believers in Christ, by those who judged and received his kingdom, not by sight but by the Spirit. These are the true daughters of Zion. For it is not possible for those not to be offended in Christ who walked by sight and feeling and do not adhere firmly to the word. Let us receive first and hold fast this picture in which the nature of faith is placed before us. For as the appearance and object of faith as here presented is contrary to nature and reason, so the same ineffectual and unreasonable appearance is to be found in all articles and instances of faith. If Christ had entered in splendor like a king of earth, the appearance and the words would have been according to nature and reason, and would have seemed the eye according to the words, but then there would have been no room for faith. He who believes in Christ must find riches in poverty, honor in dishonor, joy in sorrow, life in death, and hold fast to them in that faith which clings to the word and expects such things. Fourthly, he says, Thy king... Here he distinguishes this king from all other kings. It is thy king, he says, who is promised to you, whose own you are, who alone shall direct you, yet in the spirit and not in the body. It is he for whom you have yearned from the beginning, whom the fathers have desired to see, who will deliver you from all that has hitherto burdened, troubled, and held you captive. Oh, this is a comforting word to a believing heart, for without Christ man is subjected to many raging tyrants, who are not kings but murderers, at whose hands he suffers great misery and fear. These are the devil, the flesh, the world, sin, also the law and eternal death, by all of which the troubled conscience is burdened, is under bondage, and lives in anguish. For where there is sin, there is no clear conscience. Where there is no clear conscience, there is a life of uncertainty and an unquenchable fear of death and hell in the presence of which no real joy can exist in the heart, as Leviticus 26 says, 
the sound of a driven leaf shall chase them. Where the heart receives this king with a firm faith, it is secure and does not fear sin, death, hell, or any other evil. For he well knows, and in no wise doubts, that this king is the Lord of life and death, of sin and grace, of hell and heaven, and that all things are in his hand. For this reason he became our king and came down to us, that he might deliver us from those tyrants and rule over us himself alone. Therefore he who is under this king cannot be harmed either by sin, death, hell, Satan, man, or any other creature. And as his king lives without sin and is blessed, so must he be kept forever without sin and death in living blessedness. See, such great things are contained in these seemingly unimportant words, Behold thy king. Such boundless gifts are brought by this poor and despised king. All this reason does not understand, nor nature comprehend, but faith alone does. Therefore he is called thy king, thine who art vexed and harassed by sin, Satan, death, and hell, the flesh, and the world, so that thou mayest be governed and directed in the grace, in the spirit, in life, in heaven, in God. With this word, therefore, he demands faith in order that you may be certain that he is such a king to you, has such a kingdom, and has come and is proclaimed for this purpose. If you do not believe this of him, you will never acquire such faith by any work of yours. What you think of him you will have, what you expect of him you will find. And as you believe, so shall it be to you. He will still remain what he is, the king of life, of grace, and of salvation, whether he is believed on or not. Fifthly, he cometh. Without doubt you do not come to him and bring him to you. He is too high and too far from you. With all your effort, work, and labor you cannot come to him, lest you boast as though you had received him by your own merit and worthiness. No, dear friend, all merit and worthiness is out of the question, and there is nothing but demerit and unworthiness on your side, nothing but grace and mercy on his. The poor and the rich here come together, as Proverbs 22 says. The prophet mentions the people twice, while the evangelist says only once, daughter of Zion. For it is one people, daughter of Zion and daughter of Jerusalem, namely the people of the same city who believe in Christ and receive him. The evangelist does not invite to joy like the prophet, but simply says, tell it to the daughter of Zion. He does it to show how the joy and exultation shall be carried on. None should expect bodily but spiritual joy, a joy that can be gathered alone from the word by the faith of the heart. From a worldly aspect, there was nothing joyful in Christ's entrance. His spiritual advent must be preached and believed, that is, his meekness. This makes men joyful and glad. That the prophet gives Christ three titles, lowly, just, and having salvation, while the evangelist has only one, meek, is again done for brevity's sake. He suggests more than he explains. It seems to me that the Holy Ghost led the apostles and evangelists to abbreviate the passages of the scriptures for the purpose that we might be kept close to the Holy Scriptures and not set a bad example to future interpreters who make many words outside the Scriptures and thereby draw secretly from the Scriptures to human doctrines. As if to say, if I spread the Scriptures verbatim, everyone will follow the example and it will come to pass that we should read more in other books than in the holy writings of the principal book. 
and there would be no end to the writing of books, and we would be carried from one book to another until, finally, we would get away from the Holy Scriptures altogether, as has in fact happened. Hence, with such incomplete quotations, he directs us to the original book, where they can be found complete, so that there is no need for everyone to make a separate book and leave the first one. We notice, therefore, that it is the intention of all the apostles and evangelists in the New Testament to direct and drive us to the Old Testament, which they call the Holy Scriptures proper. In the Hebrew language, the two words meek and lowly do not sound alike and mean not a poor man who is wanting in money and property, but who in his heart is humble and wretched, and whom truly no anger nor haughtiness is to be found but meekness and sympathy. And if we wish to obtain the full meaning of this word, we must take it as Luke uses it, who describes how Christ at his entrance wept and wailed over Jerusalem. We interpret, therefore, the words lowly and meek in light of Christ's conduct. How does he appear? His heart is full of sorrow and compassion toward Jerusalem. There is no anger or revenge, but he weeps out of tenderness at their impending doom. None was so bad that he did or wished him harm. His sympathy makes him so kind and full of pity that he thinks not of anger, of haughtiness, of threatening or revenge, but he offers boundless compassion and goodwill. This is what the prophet calls lowly and the evangelist meek. Blessed is he who knows Christ in him and believes in him. He cannot be afraid of him, but has a true and comforting confidence in him and entrance to him. He does not try to find fault either, for as he believes, he finds it. These words do not lie or deceive. The word just does not mean here the justice with which God judges, which is called the severe justice of God. For if Christ came to us with this, who could stand before him? Who could receive him, since even the saints cannot endure it? The joy and grace of this entrance would thereby be changed into the great fear and terror. The prophet's meaning, therefore, is this. Thy king cometh to thee pious or just, that is, he comes to make you godly through himself and his grace. He knows well that you are not godly. Your piety should consist not in your deeds, but in his grace and gift, so that you are just and godly through him. In this sense, St. Paul speaks in Romans 3, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. That is, Christ alone is pious before God, and he alone makes us pious. Also in Romans 1, For therein is revealed a righteousness of God from faith unto faith, that is, the godliness of God, namely his grace and mercy, by which he makes us godly before him, is preached in the gospel. You see in this verse from the prophet that Christ is preached for us unto righteousness, that he comes godly and just, and we become godly and just by faith. Note this fact carefully, that when you find in the scriptures the words God's justice, it is not to be understood of the self-existing imminent justice of God, as the papists and many of the fathers held, lest you be frightened. But according to the usage of Holy Writ, it means the revealed grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ in us by means of which we are considered godly and righteous before him. Hence it is called God's justice or righteousness, effected not by us, but by God through grace, 
Just as God's work, God's wisdom, God's strength, God's word, God's mouth signifies what he works and speaks in us. All this is demonstrated clearly by St. Paul in Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God which works in us and strengthens us unto salvation to everyone that believeth. For herein is revealed the righteousness of God, as it is written in Habakkuk 2, The righteous shall live by his faith. Here you see that he speaks of the righteousness of faith and calls the same the righteousness of God, preached in the gospel, since the gospel teaches nothing else but that he who believes has grace and is righteous before God and is saved. In the same manner you should understand Psalm 31, Deliver me in your righteousness, that is, by your grace, which makes me godly and righteous. The word Savior or Redeemer compels us to accept this as the meaning of the little word just. For if Christ came with his severe justice, he would not save anyone, but condemn all, as they are all sinners and unjust. But now he comes to make not only just and righteous, but also blessed all who receive him. That he alone is the just one and the Savior, be offered graciously to all sinners out of unmerited kindness and righteousness. By their pomp before Christ, the people indicated that they would receive him as their King and Lord, sent by God as a victorious and invincible Savior, showing themselves submissive to him and seeking grace from him. Christ should be preached and made known in all the world as the victorious and invincible King against sin, death, and the power of the devil in all the world for those who are oppressed and tormented, and as a Lord with whom they shall find abundant grace and mercy as their faithful priest and mediator before God. The word of the gospel concerning this king is a word of mercy and grace, which brings us peace and redemption from God. Besides invincible power and strength, as St. Paul in Romans 1 calls the gospel, a power of God unto salvation, and he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, as in Matthew 16. Finally, away with all those blind leaders who teach against this faith. We should learn here to sing Hosanna to the Son of David together with those multitudes, that is, joyfully wish happiness and prosperity to the kingdom of Christ, to holy Christendom, that God may put away all human doctrine and let Christ alone be our King, who governs by his gospel and permits us to be his. God grant it. Amen. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.